Welcome to Grace Story Podcast. We're here to connect you with education, resources, and community that equip you for the journey of restoration. My name's Nate Davison, and I'm your host, and I want to thank you once again for joining us on this episode. Uh, a, a big episode about domestic violence, going to get us some tools to put in our tool bag to help ourselves and help others uh, in a situation which uh, has some ramifications which can be very, very serious. Before we get into that, I do want to take a moment and say a big thank you to those of you who have donated to Great Story Ministries. Some of you also have uh, taken the next step and made your donation a monthly reoccurring donation. And we want to say a big thank you. And for those of you who would like to take that next step and start a monthly donation to Great Story Ministries, you can simply go to greatstoryministries.com, scroll down to the bottom of the page, click on Donate, and when you get there on that next page, there will be a box that says, Make This a Monthly Donation. Simply click that and click Donate. After that, you'll join those members of the Grace Story community who are making a difference and impact in the ministry itself with a monthly donation. The amount doesn't matter. Any amount helps. Just go to GraceStoryMinistries.com and click Donate. On this episode, we went on a little field trip down to Louisville, Kentucky. We went to University of Louisville Hospital and were able to interview Amanda Corzine. She's the clinical coordinator of safe services at University of Louisville Hospital. She has a lot of experience and expertise to offer when it comes to uh, intimate partner violence, domestic violence, and things like that. So we are really privileged to talk to her. So we're going to go to that interview right now. Amanda, first of all, thank you so much for being on the episode today. We really appreciate it. I know our listeners are going to get a lot out of this. Um, I gave them your title, uh, but why don't you just start by breaking down kind of what your job is? I am a forensic nurse examiner, a sexual assault nurse examiner at UofL Hospital. So I see victims of sexual assault and domestic violence. And my job is to photograph and document injuries, collect evidence where it's appropriate, and provide and connect them with resources in the community. Okay, so you would say you're somewhat of a content expert when it comes to domestic violence then? I am. That sounds intense. How do you how do you deal with the stress of a job like that? I really like it. I think it's really unique and I think that domestic violence victims really need specialized services when they're in the ER, so I feel really lucky to be able to provide them that one-on-one care in what otherwise might be a really busy or chaotic ER visit. So let me back up just a little bit and maybe define for our listeners what domestic violence actually is. Sure. So domestic violence can mean different things to different people. Sometimes it means violence within a family system. Here in our program, we specifically work with intimate partner violence. So violence from a current or former uh, intimate partner, someone that they were in a relationship with at some point. Gotcha. And it may be hard for you to kind of disseminate, but how many of these cases do you see at your inner city level one trauma center? We work with over 400 victims of domestic violence every year and an additional 400 victims of sexual assault on average. Wow. And that's just at this hospital or is that all hospitals or? That's here at UofL Hospital and we have a clinic at our local domestic violence shelter where we can also see victims. So about 100 patients come from there, but the majority are seen here at UofL. It's my understanding too that this has kind of upticked in the last few years um, the amount of patients you've seen. Why, why do you think that is? 
I think it's increased because we've had better services. Okay. I think that domestic violence victims have always been uh, coming to ERs to seek care, but we haven't always taken the time to ask the questions. Why, why are you really here and sure. what can we do to help you? So once we developed a system to both ask the right questions and then provide them with additional resources, uh, I think it became a, a known product that we could provide to them. And, and maybe more people came in to seek care, but maybe they were always here. So let's camp out there just for a second. Cause you, you mentioned asking questions better, uh, channeling maybe a, a from the viewpoint of a victim coming in what what would that experience be like for them coming to the emergency department right now what would they expect to see yeah anyone coming into a healthcare setting really should be screened for domestic violence and by that i mean almost every medical record across the the country should ask a question about do you feel safe at home and is there anyone hurting you because healthcare providers should care about that it affects your outcomes but a few years ago at UofL what we did was we improved the screening questions so we made it so that when someone comes into the hospital they are asked four questions uh, targeting domestic violence specifically to kind of get at the core of the issue and to make it more than just like a passing question and more of to let them know that we we have services available and we really do care and that way we've been able to identify a lot more victims so we're actually here at university of louisville we're in your office we can hear action in the background Uh, what kind of resources do you have here or in general what kind of resources when a victim goes for help what can they expect to to have available to them A few different things are available to them. First, we can connect them with someone from the local domestic violence shelter, which is the Center for Women and Families here in Louisville. An advocate actually comes to meet with them in person. It's not over the phone, but here at UofL, an advocate will come meet with them in person. Um, Talk to them about resources, safety planning. Just let them know that they're here to support them, both during their hospital stay and beyond. So they're they're not alone. And it also sounds like this is someone who's not just there to be there so they're not alone there it's someone who knows the system what to expect next can guide them through um, in an unbiased way maybe yeah a lot of it is uh, uh, emotional support and but a lot of education along with of it here are your options here's what you might be helpful to you whether that's a protective order or filing a police report or not having any law enforcement involvement but just knowing that there's counseling available support groups available from the Center for Women and Families. And that's available both for victims who come in because of their injuries that seek emergency level care because of domestic violence, but also someone who tells us that they're experiencing that, but they're really here for another reason. An advocate would still respond to come talk to them. So I'm I'm somebody that's coming in and maybe, maybe I don't want to just overtly tell you that I'm a victim, but I want to, you know, I'm in trouble. Are, are there systems for that um, or, or just the questionnaire? Yes, there's definitely systems for that. If someone tells us that they are in trouble, that they need help, then an advocate would still respond. But I think that's a really important opportunity to connect with them because we, while we want to provide great services to victims who come in acutely after their injuries, we'd like to work with them before it gets to that point. Sure. And so I think it's a a really great opportunity to connect with them there. And um, we also understand that domestic violence does not always take a physical form. So domestic violence can be a lot of different things in a relationship. 
And sometimes the stress that victims are experiencing at home can contribute to chronic health conditions. Research shows that one of the most common reasons people come to an ER when they're experiencing domestic violence is more of the chronic issue, the migraine, the low belly pain, the back pain, things like that, because they're under such constant stress at home that that has a medical manifestation and often drives them to ERs. So we, we talked a lot about them coming to a hospital. Are there other places people go for help uh, in a domestic violence situation? And where might that be? Would you prefer one over the other? Yeah, victims obviously can go a lot of different places. They can access directly services from um, their local domestic violence shelter, uh, like the Center for Women and Families, but also any healthcare office should help be able to connect them with resources if they are knowledgeable of them. Good. So one of the things um, we see some people asking is, um, are there early signs of abuse? How do I know maybe a, a relationship is heading in a wrong direction? There are early signs of abuse and there are red flags that people can look for, but they're hard to see when you're in the moment. And I think a lot of victims that I work with are kicking themselves for not seeing it and thinking I never should have gotten to this point. I never should have been with this person. But if you were looking at a, a dating ad and mm -hmm. they mentioned that they were violent and controlling and wouldn't let you leave the house without their permission, you probably wouldn't pick that person sure. today, right? So when people get into relationships that end up uh, becoming violent, a lot of times they start off looking like every other relationship out there, loving and attentive and showering with gifts and attention. So sometimes we can say there are red flags to say maybe there's too much of that. Maybe they're leaning towards controlling behavior, always wanting to know where you are and who you're with and doubting if you say that you're with someone that that's really the truth. I think those are red flags that are important to look for because you should always uh, be able to feel trusted and believed by your partner no matter what. And so if that happens early in a relationship, it could be a sign that things are going down the wrong road. But I also want to make sure people know that don't waste time kicking yourself. If you didn't see it then, work on getting out of that relationship and getting to a safe place. And then it's easier to kind of look back and say, oh, I should have seen that coming. But in the moment, it just it wasn't available to you to see in that light. Yeah, and I think it's important, maybe there's a good spot to say it, that you know, uh, any victim of domestic violence, it's not their fault. Right, absolutely not. Uh, someone who's experiencing domestic violence, it's not their fault. They are worth more than what they're receiving in that relationship. But a lot of what domestic violence is, is the emotional abuse that goes along with that. And by emotional abuse, I mean both the name calling and the putting down and making people feel worthless but it erodes the victim's sense of confidence and f makes them feel like no one else would even love them even if they left this person. Wow, so, th so this is more than just bruises um, and various stages of healing over time. This can be just your heart is damaged as well. Yeah. Um, and it can contribute to, it sounds like from what you've said, to chronic health problems as well. Um, it's really a holistic thing. One, one thing people have, have um, mentioned as we've prepared for this podcast, this episode, um, there seems to be a um, kind of idea that people go back to these relationships or the abuser. And I kind of wanted to ask you as a content expert, A, is that true? And B, maybe why is that? 
Yeah, it is absolutely true. It, on average, can take a victim seven times to successfully leave an abuser. So many victims go back. And what we have found, the reason we found for that is that they're looking for that person that was there in the beginning of the relationship, mm. the person who showered them with love and attention and gifts and promised them so many things. And they're really shocked when that becomes an abusive person who is really acting in the opposite way. So the, they go back looking for what was there in the beginning. And that is one of the reasons. But another reason is the, the uh, financial complications, children, mm. other things that keep them trapped in that relationship that even when they are mentally ready to escape, maybe they're not able to. Wow. And, and we don't always think of that as in, you know, hey, just pick up and leave. But in past episodes, we've, we've learned that if you say, you know, if they would only just, you're kind of speaking from a point of privilege where they may not have the same resources as you. And you talk about those ties too. They're, they're stuck in more ways than one. Um, yeah, they really are. And the other thing I would say about that is leaving is one of the most dangerous times in a domestic violence relationship. How, how, when you say that, what do you mean by that? When someone chooses to leave a domestic violence relationship, that may be the time when they are most likely to be killed by their perpetrator. And I don't mean that all victims are at risk of being murdered by their perpetrator, but when the violence is escalating, sometimes that is the worst point when they try and leave because the perpetrator senses that they may be losing control. And so sometimes when I talk to victims, they'll say, I'm going back because it's the safest thing for me to do. If I leave, he'll kill me. And I believe them. They are the experts in their own experience. And so sometimes going back is safer than leaving. And I think that's really hard for someone on the outside to understand. Yeah. And you know, it sounds like we've already talked about it. My next question was going to be, why don't they just leave? Mm -hmm. um, and it sounds like everything up to and including loss of life is why they don't leave. Every situation is probably unique uh, that you see um, in some way or another. Um, weird question, kind of a sidebar, but can men be victims of domestic violence? Oh yeah, absolutely. When we started our uh, revised screening process here at the hospital, started asking better questions to identify domestic violence victims, what we found was the number of males we increased just shot through the roof. Really? Yeah, I think that they were less likely to disclose how their injuries came to be. And so when we frankly asked them the questions and they said, actually, you know, my girlfriend did do this to me or my wife did this to me, then we were able to connect them with resources. But if you didn't upfront ask that, then they weren't going to volunteer that information. So it sounds, and I don't know if you can repeat them off the top of your head, but what, what do those questions sound like uh, when you're sitting in that hospital bed or in that waiting room, depending on the environment? What does that sound like? Yeah, so the, the questions that we ask here, it's called the um, personal violence screen. And it's, uh, is there someone from a current relationship who's making you feel unsafe or anyone from a past relationship? Are you here today for domestic violence injuries? And have you been hit, kicked, punched, strangled, or otherwise hurt in the past year? And if so, if so, then by whom? That's interesting. So I can see why people may not just volunteer that, especially if they're here for something else, maybe. Uh, do you discover a lot of people that are here for one thing? You mentioned the chronic illnesses people tend to come in for. Um, do you discover a lot of people that way, or, or do they mainly stay silent? 
I guess it's hard to know if they stay silent, but I feel like it's one of our greatest successes of the program is identifying people who are not here for injuries because those are people we just would have totally missed. As a nurse, you know, it it is somewhat easier to look at someone with a black eye or a broken arm and say, who did that to you? But to take the time with someone who has belly pain or the migraine and say, what else is going on in your life? And can, I'm going to ask you a few questions about what's going on at home is really different. So that's the greatest success to me is to have a chance to connect with those victims earlier. And I'm sure that's especially difficult in any ER, but especially a level one trauma center where uh, it's my understanding you see anywhere from 160 to 180 patients a day in a 24-hour period. So slowing down enough to ask those questions probably saves some lives. Yeah, I think it it absolutely does. And I try and share that information with the ER nurses who are taking the time to do that because it is an investment on their part. But I also think when hospitals can invest in having the resources to back it up, uh, that's even more important because a lot of times nurses are willing to ask the question. That's why we got into this profession to help and to heal. But if they've asked the question and then say, oh, now I'm not sure what to do with that, then that's a lot harder for the staff. So the hospitals have to invest in the infrastructure to say, okay, here's what we can provide when you do disclose. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with more from Amanda Corzine just after this. Grace Story 2020 is happening November 13th and 14th in Cincinnati, Ohio at Springdale Nazarene Church. Register now using the promo code BRAVE, that's B-R-A-V-E, to save 25%. This year, there's even more time for community. The self-care vendor market is open for the entirety of the conference, even during sessions. Saturday lunch is included. Along with the Afterglow, Grater's Ice Cream will be included, and also seven amazing sessions during the conference that include speakers like Jamie Taylor, Dr. Kathy Padden, Ryan Waters, Blake Jones, Rachel Henry, Kathy Sprinkle, and Amber Jones. There's so much more that you won't want to miss out on, so head on over to GraceStoryMinistries.com and get your ticket today. Don't forget, use the promo code BRAVE, B-R-A-V-E. A-V-E to save 25% off your ticket price. We'll see you at conference. So it sounds like you guys are really good at uh, recognizing this in the hospital, but for my listeners who are at home, maybe wondering, you know, how they can help, how do they maybe recognize a victim of domestic violence? I think it's taking the time to understand the experience of the person that they are worried might be experiencing violence. So, you know, I think you can look for the red flags in a relationship and then take time to take that uh, victim aside and ask what's going on. Is there anything I can do? Do you need anything? And not give them all the answers and not say you need to leave that person. They're not they're not treating you right. That feels like judgment to them. So just being there to listen, being able to offer assistance, know that there are things available to them if they do need help in those acute times of trauma or when they're leaving the relationship. You know, I I guess I always have an eye out for it because it's in my line of work. But uh, when I've had people in my personal life come to me and and tell me what's going on in their relationships, I just try and inform and educate and also just be a listening ear because I don't know what's best for them. But I do want to make sure they know how to get a protective order and about counseling services and and where to go to seek that kind of help. So would you send them to... um 
you or is there a website or, or where would the common layperson go to help inform a victim or themselves really? I would direct them to a crisis hotline. I think that's the best central location to get information and support for the victim um, and can give specific resources for their community. So uh, there's a national domestic violence hotline, though there will also be local ones, but those are probably the best places to go. So you've done a lot with uh, legislation, lawmaking, things like that, being an advocate for, for patients, nurse-wise, in that arena. Uh, can we go a little bit further down that avenue when it comes to resources for for victims? What resources are there when it comes to law? Yeah, there are some some laws that can protect them and some resources available. So, of course, laws are going to vary by state. But in general, if they uh, are physically injured or threatened with physical injury, then that can be reported to police and it would be considered an assault of whatever level, depending on the state. And so fi- uh, those charges could be filed. Um, they could call their local police department or they could walk in and file at a different time if they want to do it that way. Anything they can do to have evidence of that is helpful. So if they have a bruise or any visible injuries, even if they just take a picture on their cell phone, that is extremely helpful for pressing charges later on. And sometimes in ongoing violent relationships, that's the best thing that they can do is record the injuries that they have. Some people will even keep a calendar and a secret calendar and write down what happened and what injuries they had and then have a a photo of it. Sometimes they send those photos to their friends for safekeeping so that they can delete them off their phone. Um, There are are even some new apps out there to be able to track those things kind of secretly in case Mm. the perpetrator would get a hold of the phone. So there are legal options that way, but it doesn't all revolve around making someone go to jail. And sometimes that's one of the hardest things for victims to really decide to do because they do still have loving feelings for their perpetrator. And Mm. so they don't want them to go to jail. So if they don't want them to go to jail, uh, they don't feel comfortable pressing charges. They should be able to get a protective order, which is not a criminal order, but it is an order that keeps the person away from them. If the person violates that, if they continue to call and harass and come over and the victim calls that into police, then there would be criminal charges. But as long as the perpetrator follows the rules and the order, then they would not be arrested and there would be no criminal charges. And there'll be a series of hearings on that and they can drop it at a later date if they want to. But I think it is a little more victim centered um, and does not involve the criminal process as much. So I know it's probably, um, you know, county or state specific, but generally, where would someone go to start something like you just mentioned with uh, restraining? Yeah, in a larger city, they'll usually do that at the courthouse, but in some smaller areas, they do it either at the sheriff's office or the whatever law enforcement looks like in the county that they reside. It may not be 24-7 in smaller counties, but in most larger areas, it is. So you had mentioned earlier about, you know, the, maybe the, the worst time, the most dangerous time for somebody leaving this type of situation is when they're leaving. Um, it can get up to and including death. So I kind of want to go back to that and ask what are some, from your professional opinion and your experience, what are some, uh, some tips, some strategies um, as you're building up to that moment um, or in, in the relationship to, to try to stay safe as possible? Yeah, there are some things that victims can do 
uh, to help them stay safe when and if they choose to leave. Uh, one recommendation I have is if they have a trusted friend or family member that they can leave important documents with uh, or a small amount of money or um, safety plans of some sort, then to have that person have a copy of that information. Um, sometimes perpetrators really, actually most times perpetrators really separate victims from their family and friends and they, they isolation is a huge part of the violence that they experience. So sometimes they don't even feel like they have that, but if they can, if there, or if there's a lockbox where they could put it, where they know they, they could access it, that's really important and will help them through some hurdles as they first move out. Other than that, having a plan for how you would escape the place if it becomes incredibly violent. So whether that means walking at your door and getting on whatever bus you can get on or calling 911 or running to a friend's house and giving that friend a heads up, like when I come knock on your door, call 911 no matter what I say to you. So kind of some code words and plans that they can escape that as, as quickly as they can. Um, other than that, I think it's just important to think through the safety plans in their own head. It can be really difficult when you're in that cycle and you feel like your life is being threatened to think clearly. But if you can take time when there's a moment to write down a safety plan for yourself, who would you call? What would you do? Maybe write down a few phone numbers because a lot of times phones are broken during the assault so that you have a way to call the people you need to call. And then I think going to an ER it should be a safe place for people. And hopefully um, an ER can connect you with the resources you need. They're not going to be able to solve all your problems. But there are connections to resources. They could call police for you. They could um, hopefully get in touch with the local domestic violence shelter. So we've kind of talked through during this episode an entire almost continuum of, of a relationship like this and what to do in it, when what it looks like when you're leaving, what you can expect while you're leaving. Um, but a question that makes me wonder, uh, can abusers change and can it become a safe environment? Um, is that possible in your experience? I do think it's possible. It's hard and it takes work and it takes commitment on the part of the perpetrator. But honestly, when I started this work, I didn't think it was possible. I thought, you know, they're terrible people and they'll always be terrible people. But over the years, I have seen people who are willing to put in the work and change. Now, what I don't think works is putting it all on an anger management issue. Yeah. Oh, they just have an anger problem. No, this is not an anger problem. This is a domestic violence problem. And so they need to be willing to put in the work and counseling and support that they need. But sometimes there are also acute stressors. Of course, if there's alcohol or drugs, if there are money troubles at home that are making their life more stressful, it can exacerbate the power and control that they're um, putting on the victim. So I do think that perpetrators can change, but first they have to recognize their behavior. And it's really hard for them to recognize it when they're still in the relationship with the victim because they still have it. And without taking away the power and control, how can you make them recognize what's happening? So one follow-up to that, and I, I love that, that people can change. It sounds scary though, uh, to go back into something like that. But it sounds like some people may want to because of the love that they have for that individual, no matter what we see from the outside of the relationship. But how will you know when it's safe to go back? Oh, that's a tough one. I think it's going to be a very individual experience. And I think it's going to involve a lot of counseling. 
I don't think it's going to be one fight and then there's a calm conversation and everyone promises not to do it again and then it's fine. I think it's going to be months of counseling and uh, looking at their own behaviors, both the, uh, the behaviors on the part of the perpetrator, but also the victim recognizing their own um, emotional well-being and lack of well-being and how to make themselves feel whole without their partner. And it sounds like you're saying a a lot of professional intervention. So not just you, hey, I'm going to really try harder this time. We're both going to try hard. But having that professional intervene and and tell you when maybe it's safe or maybe it's not safe at all. But here we are. So we're almost at the end of this episode. And I thank you so much for your time. I know you're really, really busy. Of course. Uh, But if there's one thing you could leave with our listeners from this episode or one thing you want to communicate to someone who's listening, um, what, what would that be? I think that would be that you may think that domestic violence doesn't happen in your family or your neighborhood or your community uh, because you don't see it. But domestic violence happens in so many places and in so many different ways to really take a moment and look at that again and understand that it is happening and we do need to devote time and energy uh, to supporting victims in our community whether that's someone you know personally or a way that you can contribute to helping victims that you may not know awesome and and thank you again so much for being on the great story podcast today i appreciate your time thank you and of course we want to say a big thank you to you the great story listener for joining us for this episode of great story podcast Wherever you are, however you're listening, we just say thank you. Tune in two weeks from now. You're going to hear Brandon Hillegoss. He's our creative director here at Great Story Ministries. He's going to be joining us to talk to us about something called creative capital and how we can use that in our journey of restoration. We'll see you next time.